I'm very excited about this passage this morning, so let's get right to it. This is exciting. This is a, uh, this is a passage that's going to challenge you a little bit, and it might be offensive at first, even, as we consider what it's truly saying. But I think if we can move past that, if we can take that in and understand what Jesus is saying and take his words seriously, then I think it actually can fill us with purpose. It's a very powerful passage, these short four verses. So I hope you're ready. Hope you've stretched. Hope you're awake. Let's do this. Okay, Luke 17, 7 through 10. Pastor Cruz just read it for us. And you'll see in your bulletins that we're talking about the subject of entitlement. The cure for entitlement's my, my title. Um, we live in a fallen world, of course. And uh, in this fallen world, sin is manifested in a number of ways, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. And one of the ways that sin is put on display in our attitudes or in the attitudes of others is this attitude of entitlement. So I searched for the internet, which is always a bad idea, uh, and I found a very interesting article called People Share the Worst Case of Entitlement They Have Ever Witnessed. And here are some of the stories that people submitted to this website for your Uh, listening pleasure here. It says, a girl at my high school was given a brand new Ford Mustang for her birthday. She was upset because she didn't want a Mustang, so she crashed it in hopes that her dad would buy her another car, which he did. So there you go. It wasn't, wasn't good enough. Another person said this, I know someone who bought a house without realizing that it was very close to train tracks. The individual was outraged and called a major rail freight company and asked them to stop running trains at night. So they felt they could do that. Um, They didn't get anywhere with that request, but they tried. And then here's one more, as told by another anonymous contributor. He says, a friend of mine and his rich cousin went skiing together. My friend set out his ski clothes on the bed and went to the restroom. When he returned, they were gone. His rich cousin was so used to clothes being set out for him that he just put on my friend's clothes without thinking and went skiing and was gone. So there you go, three cases of entitlement uh, that people shared, and there were many, many more that could just go on and on about. But my point is entitlement is a big problem these days, and it's probably easier for, it's easy for us to think of personal examples where we've interacted with somebody who we felt was entitled. It's easy for us to spot it in others, of course. It's harder for us to recognize when we are the ones who are displaying that same attitude. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap that we see in others. Maybe not in as exaggerated ways as we've just read, but maybe in little ways or ways that are big and we just don't see. We can get used to certain privileges, and before we know it, we become entitled, and even worse, If we're not careful, we can begin to develop an entitled attitude towards God. That is, we can begin to think that God owes us certain things, when in fact, we are the creatures, and he is the creator. We serve him and not the other way around. And so this morning, we're going to look at this parable of Jesus. And in this parable, Jesus is going to offer us a cure for entitlement, a cure for entitlement. And here's the main idea. It's that having a proper understanding of our position before God guards our hearts from entitlement and makes us a more grateful people. Let me say that again. Having an understanding of our proper position before God guards our hearts from entitlement and makes us a more grateful people. 
So as we live the Christian life and as we serve God in our lives, it's absolutely crucial that we understand our place in this work. And when we do, I think we'll actually be a more humble and a more thankful people. So let's consider this entire passage that Jesus has here for us this morning, found in Luke 17, 7 through 10. Now, it's a rather uh, short parable, as far as parables go. Remember that a parable can be as elaborate or as long as a detailed story, or they can be just short illustrations. When we think of parables, right, and I was asking my kids this last night because I was trying to get them prepped for what I was going to talk about, I said, can you name some parables, you know, and ones like the Good Samaritan came to mind, and those are the ones we think of most naturally, right, because they're these long stories that Jesus told, and, and that comes to our mind rather easily, but there are many other parables in the Bible besides these giant ones. There are short statements that aren't stories at all, but whenever Jesus is making a comparison of some sort um, and then drawing a spiritual application from it, that is usually known as a parable. It doesn't have to be this long story. It can just be this short comparison, and that's what Jesus is doing here. We don't really have a story, per se, but we have a parable nonetheless. And one of the ways we can tell it's a parable is because he begins with this familiar way of starting them where he says, which of you or which one of you will do such and such? That's a formula he uses in other parables. If you were to look up John, Ele- I'm sorry, Luke 11, 5, or uh, many other different ones in Luke, Luke 12, 25, 14, 28, and others, it's clearly a parable. But while this is very short, having only four verses, uh, the text is actually very easy for us to outline. So just look down in your Bibles here for me. If, if you look down in verses 7 through 9, you'll see the, the illustration is given in those three verses, right? He's talking about a servant and a master. He's saying, which of you, if you have a, a servant, or, you know, would, would you say such and such to? Um, and then it's only in verse 10 that he draws out the application. He says, so you also should do. And then he goes to give us the application of that, right? So an easy outline, two points. Number one, we see the illustration, seven through nine, and then the application in verse 10. Very easy to look at. So let's take this in parts, okay? And this is gonna be a very atypical type of sermon here, I'm afraid, because we're not gonna go verse by verse, word for word. We're gonna look at this more in a section at a time. So I'm gonna reread verses seven through nine, just now that we're woken up, now that we know what we're talking about, we're gonna hear it again. I find it always helps when I reread a passage, so let's do that. It says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare a supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? All right, so let's stop here for a moment, and uh, as you can tell, uh, that illustration is centered, centered around this relationship between a servant and a master, and in this illustration that Jesus is giving, he asks three rhetorical questions. Do you see that? As you look down, he's asking question after question. There's three of them, but the answers that are implied for each of these questions might shock us, especially as 21st century Americans. So to understand what Jesus is saying, we really are going to have to understand the historical context of this, specifically the role of servants in Jesus' ancient Near East. So let me explain what I mean by this. In verse 7, let's look through these three questions that he asks. Verse 7, he says this, 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, uh, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Okay, that's the first question. It's a rhetorical question. It's one that he expects the answer is implied already as he's asking it. And, uh, and as we read this, here's the problem. We're removed 2,000 years from this particular saying. So when we read this with our 21st century American minds, if we can get past the part about owning a servant, right, we would say to this question, why, yes, of course, Jesus. If someone was working for me for several hours and they were plowing a field or keeping sheep all day, once their task is complete, of course I would allow them to stop and take a break, okay? In our 21st century American mindsets, that's probably how we'd answer. But here's the crazy thing. The implied answer is actually no. The answer really that Jesus is driving at is no. He's saying, if you were a responsible master, no, you wouldn't allow that servant to come in and relax. At least not yet, anyway. And to that you might say, well, what do you mean, Jesus? But Jesus continues with this second rhetorical question in verse 8. So let's look to number 2. Verse 8, he says, Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you eat and drink? Now if we pause here, we might be thinking, now hold on, the servant was just out in the field all day, we're imagining this person, he's plowing, he's caring for sheep, maybe it's the hot sun, something like that, shouldn't he be allowed to sit down and maybe have something to eat or drink at this point? After all, there's a good chance that maybe he's more famished than the master is. But again, Jesus' implied answer is not what our modern ears would expect. Jesus is actually saying the answer to this question is no. The proper thing for the servant to do would be, in that case, to come in from his work and then make dinner for his master. And only after that is done should he eat his own meal. So we're, we're trying to wrap our, our minds around what Jesus has said here, these two very shocking questions, and he asks yet a third question for his disciples. He's not done. He asks one more here in verse 9. Let's read that. He says here this third question, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? All right, and if we've gone this far, we might stop and, and we want to say, yes, of course. Of course you thank the servant. Uh, he just worked in his fields all day, and then when he came in, he's tired, he's spent, and he made dinner for his master as well. On top of that, shouldn't the master give him special praise for working and then making a meal on top of it all? But again, when we pause and see what Jesus does next in verse 10, we see his actual implied answer is no. Because in verse 10, he says this, so you also, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So I don't want you to miss this here. Jesus' point is that servants are not entitled to any special privileges just because they did what was commanded. Let me say that again. Jesus' point is that servants are not entitled to any special privileges just for doing their duty. 
Now, we probably need to, to really pause here and recalibrate our minds, because if you're anything like me, Jesus' three questions and answers to those questions sound rather startling, maybe even harsh. I mean, isn't he being hard on the servant? That's what I wondered when I first read this text. Then again, when we, when we start to ask those kinds of questions, we have to stop and remember, this is Jesus we're talking about, right? So, I don't know about you, but if ever my thoughts are different from Jesus's, I probably need to go with Jesus's, right? If there's a problem, then maybe it's me. Maybe it's not the Lord of the universe, right? So uh, that's just what I would suggest to all of us if you're wrestling with those same kinds of things. We have to say, okay, maybe that I'm the one who isn't seeing this clearly. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Uh, And in those instances, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help correct our perspective. So then we ask, we should pull back and say, what's really going on in this parable? To accept Jesus' worldview, we need to come to grips with the concept of a servant. Because after all, the main point of this parable in verse 10 is that Jesus is calling us servants. And I said that from the beginning of the service here this morning. Our theme is servanthood. We are servants of God. So if we're going to understand what that means, we really need to understand it in the way that Jesus intended it to mean, or else we're going to miss the point entirely. So what did Jesus have in mind, and what did his original hearers hear when he talked about this idea of a servant? Well, the Greek word used here is doulos, which literally means a slave. It literally means a slave. And that's what's really shocking, maybe, when you realize that and when you realize this word that he's using. If you have a New American Standard Bible, I don't know if you still use that a lot. Before we use the ESV, for those of you who have been here long enough, you'll remember our pew Bibles were New American Standard Bibles. Uh, They're wonderful, wonderful translations, and there's times where I, I even prefer to still use that from time to time. If you have a New American Standard, or if you have a Bible app where you can easily switch between versions, I'd encourage you to do so right now because you'll see something pretty amazing, that the word that's translated servant here in the ESV is rendered in the NAS as slave. And I think they actually do a good job in translating it. And when you reflect just on what verse 10 sounds like, when we use that translation, um, it will blow our minds. Jesus tells us then, we, in verse 10, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we have ought to have done. Wow. And I think that's actually really how the passage should strike us. So in fact, when I looked up this term, doulos, this word that's translated as slave or servant, uh, the main biblical Greek dictionary that we often use when we're preparing things for sermons, it's known as Bauer, Art, and Gingrich. It's used by pastors across the world to translate and to look into these Greek terms and things. Uh, they make this very important at the, at the beginning note of this word, doulos. It says, the replacement of slave for servant is largely confined to modern American biblical translation. That means because we as Americans have been so repelled by our country's history of slavery, and rightly so, most American translators hesitate to use the word slave for doulos today because they know the word will produce such a negative reaction from the average reader. But again, I think the NAS does the best job here. Slave really is the best translation. And you might even realize that it's being done in your translation. But 
Think of how many verses contain the word servant, or in your Bibles across the board, the word bondservant. Okay, do any verses come to mind? Not just in this passage, not just in Luke, but in Paul's writings as well. Think of all the times where it mentions servant or bondservant. And I would say that in many cases, it would be more appropriate to use the word slave as the NASB does. And that's meant to strike us. That's meant to strike us. For in our parable, Jesus is intending to make that type of dramatic comparison. So if that's the case, we might throw up a red flag in our minds. Does that mean that Jesus is endorsing all of the evils that we think of when we remember what American slavery was like? And to that, I would say certainly not. And this is where we have to understand the idea of slavery in the New Testament times to fully understand the example that Jesus is using. For slavery in biblical times was very different from the slavery that was practiced in the Western world, including in our own country in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, for example, slavery in Jesus' day was not race-based. It was not based on somebody's skin color. And that kind of slavery was true in America, but it wasn't in biblical times. So a slave could be a person from virtually any nationality uh, back then. Jesus was also not endorsing the practice that was so common in later uh, Western slave trade where people were literally captured and kidnapped in Africa to be sold as slaves. For Exodus 21:16 says this, it says, So for whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found to be in possession of him, shall be put to death. So further, when Jesus uses the example of a slave, he is also not therefore condoning the abuse and mistreatment of slaves. For Ephesians 6.9 demonstrates that God was against that as well. And listen to this, you don't have to turn there. But it says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven um, he who, yeah, I'm sorry, let's say that again. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So all in all, even though Jesus uses this example of slavery, he is not advocating racism, he's not advocating kidnapping or selling someone, and he's not advocating mistreating someone either. Those are the things, unfortunately, that come into our minds just because of the history that we know with modern American uh, slavery that was true in the 18th and 19th centuries. But rather, what we find in the New Testament, both in the teachings of Jesus and Paul, is that slaves or servants, if uh, you would rather uh, say that, uh, were individuals who were to be treated well, not sold, but considered as people created in the image of God, but nevertheless people whose purpose was to work for the benefit of their master. So a slave's job, if you will, was to work hard for their master, and in return they would be cared for, uh, given food, given a home. And you might say, well, that still sounds like slavery, and of course it is, but understand that at the time becoming a slave was not something that you were kidnapped or taken from and put into, but it was actually an economic thing that was done in place of starvation and death. It was actually an economic safety net in many cases. So let me just read to you this a passage from uh, gotquestions.org, which addresses this very question of what, what's going on here with this idea of slavery. Slavery was based more on economics, it says. 
It was a matter of social status. People sold themselves as slaves when they could not pay their debts or provide for their families. And in New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, and even politicians were slaves of someone else. Some people actually chose to be slaves so as to have all their needs provided for by their masters. So, Again, in the New Testament era, a lot of times, if you were running out of money, if you had debts that were beyond your ability to pay, you would literally sell yourself into slavery so that you wouldn't die, um, because you would have no other uh, option of being able to pay off that debt. So a good example of this is actually in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And we're not going to turn there, but if you remember from that story, Joseph is made second in command of Egypt under Pharaoh. And he was put there by God to save them all from this terrible famine that was going to come across the land. And it says during his time of reigning as second in command that as the people needed grain and they didn't have any to eat themselves, they would come to him and sell different things that they had, whether it's livestock or eventually their fields and their their lands. And then when the famine continued on, they had nothing left to sell. So they said to Pharaoh, we offer ourselves as slaves, as servants to be able to pay for this food so that we would not die. And, uh, and that's what slavery was back in that period of time. It was a time of extended servitude, I guess you could say. And even with that in mind, the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible had certain measures in place, again, to make sure that people weren't mistreated, uh, that they weren't just kidnapped and, and taken from their families. And even every seven years, the idea was that all of those servants were to be set free in that year of, of Jubilee, to be set free. So this, this whole practice continued into the New Testament era, so that if someone owed money and could not pay, uh, becoming a slave was that social and economic means of surviving. Um, and so even voluntary uh, slavery was widespread as a means of escape from poverty and starvation, because after all, if you're in somebody else's household, at least you have food to eat, you have a place to stay, um, whereas you might not otherwise. Now, there are other instances. In times of of war, if your nation was conquered, uh, the expectation was that you would literally be killed, right? If you were were taken in war, that was another instance where slavery might happen. But again, your expectation wasn't that things were going to go fine. You were to be dead. (laughs) And so as an alternative to that, uh, you could be spared, but you would become a slave to this new nation. Again, Hebrew law prohibited all these different types of mistreatments and and things of of slaves. Um, Slaves had the possibility of one day purchasing their freedom early on if they uh, earned that ability to do so. But again, many would remain slaves as a way of guaranteeing their survival. All of this is important to understand because even though Jesus uses this example of a slave... It doesn't mean that they were mistreated or kidnapped or put in that position because of their race. So keep that in mind as we're back here in Luke 17, 7 through 10. Okay? All the things that jump to our mind, they're not in Jesus' mind as he's talking about this servant here. He's talking about somebody who serves their master well, as somebody for whom it's their job, but also for somebody who the master is expected to provide for and care for. That's what Jesus has in mind here. But nevertheless, he doesn't shy away from it either. Um, And for sure, a a servant or slave had a hard job, and we could say that they were not in the same level of respect as their master. 
but they are a worker of sorts. A worker with low social status and economic status, to be sure, but they were a worker nonetheless. So while the Bible makes it clear that all people, and we, we would say this and affirm this completely, that all people are created in the image of God and that slaves were not to be mistreated or kidnapped, nevertheless, Jesus did not reject that basic notion that there were natural social differences and expectations between the role of a servant and his master. Put another way, Jesus does not deny that in life we may have roles where we have certain masters over us, even, yes, into the modern day. In Jesus' day, there were slaves or servants, literally, who worked their entire life for their masters or for an extended period of time for their masters. But notice that even though we don't have servants today in the same way, we would still admit there are levels of workers. There's a difference, for example, between yourself and your boss. There are those who are lower on the corporate ladder in our businesses than those who are the top executives on that ladder. And what I want you to see here is Jesus is saying implicitly that such differences are not inherently evil. For sure, bosses aren't supposed to mistreat their employees, just as masters in the first century weren't supposed to mistreat their servants. But by the same token, there is a certain level of service that even lower-level workers are expected to do, and that's not wrong. And Jesus is saying that's not inappropriate. That's what they are expected to do. And I would say that's still true today. You can think of very practical examples. And again, it's going to be hard for us to get this into our minds because we'll get stuck on this idea of servant or slave, and that's so foreign to us. But just think of some very practical examples, right? Office assistants will run errands for their bosses or manage their calendars. Think of Uber drivers or people who drive taxis. They'll drive their clients around wherever they want to go and wherever they tell them to go. Think about a server at a restaurant. A server brings food and drinks to their customers, and, and on, on, on I could go. In fact, there are either, there, uh, there's even butlers still today, right? That's not uh, just something from old you know, England. That, there are still literally butlers today who serve the people they work for. And the point of these examples is that individuals who have these certain types of jobs are not doing anything above and beyond the call of duty when they do them. They're simply doing their job. And that applies to any of us, whatever job or occupation we might have, no matter who it is that we are under, right? There's going to be a, a social and an economic ladder no matter where you are in whatever particular um, job that you might have. But a servant or a worker is not going any ab above and beyond their call of duty when they do what is expected of them. They're doing their job. So we would say, again, with the examples we gave, a butler doesn't get a trophy for calling his employer sir or for bringing his employer a hot meal. An Uber or a taxi driver doesn't automatically get employee of the year simply because he or she has allowed this person to boss them around and tell them where to go. Rather, the point is, they've done their job. They've done their job. And that's the point that we come back to here that Jesus is making in Luke 17. Listen again to verse 7, and I hope you're still there. It says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? 
So when the servant or slave plows the field and keeps the sheep, he's saying they don't get any special treatment, per se, or earn the right to stop their work then and there, or retire for the evening, for their work is not yet complete. So again, let me make this very real to you. If you were doing your job in the middle of the week and you finish a major project, let's say you, you finish something you've been working on for weeks or days, and you get done on a Wednesday, right? You, you don't get to just go home and say, well, I'm done. That's the end of my, my work week. I don't have to come in the rest of the days. No, the, the idea is there's still more to be done. Yes, it's good to finish a major task, but there's still more that we are expected to do in our jobs. In the case of the slave in Jesus' parable, his work responsibilities were not yet complete. Continue on to verse 8. It says, Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? So the idea here is that the servant's job is not yet finished, as we said. Yes, he was supposed to plow the field, but he was also supposed to prepare a meal for his master as well. And the servant wouldn't have had the right to simply say, now, master, hold on. Uh, I, I was just out in the field. I'm going to take a break for a while. I'm going to get something to eat. And then afterwards, when I feel like it, I'll come back and I'll, I'll serve you. No. While he is on the clock, as it were, a slave was expected to serve his master, and he didn't have the right to simply interrupt that uh, whenever he wanted. Uh, so during my years at LBC, Sarah and I uh, both worked as servers at Friendly's here in town. And she was the far better server. She would always get the better tips. And uh, maybe this is a good illustrating story to tell you why that was the case. My first table, and she would say this was not her fault. Even though she trained me, this, this particular thing was not, my, not her fault. Um, I, I had a, a single woman who came in, sat down. I immediately went over to her and said, hello, my name is David. I'm going to be your server today. Welcome to Friendly's. What can I get you? And she looked at the menu and said, you know, I'll start off with an order of onion rings. Now, at the time, I didn't know onion rings were a thing. I had never had them before in my life. And I thought this was a rather odd thing for somebody to order. So I said, okay, I will get those for you right away. I didn't hesitate, even though I had no idea what she was talking about. And I went back and I looked around and I thought, onion rings, this seems weird. I looked in the salad bar, there were onions and they were ring-shaped. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna be a good server. I'm gonna get her exactly what she asked for. I don't know who would want these, but she clearly seems very excited about it. So I got some, some onion rings, some purple onion rings, and put them on a plate and brought them out to her. And I said, you know, it's okay. I don't think there's any charge for these. <laughs> Bless her heart, you know. <laughs> she looked at me, you know, just knowing that I was new and didn't know what I was doing, and. And, and she said, no, I was talking about fried onion rings. And then I looked through the menu. Oh, yeah, yeah, we have those. And she goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> then I got them, and, and she tipped me well. So I, don't, I did not deserve that uh, in that particular night. Onion rings, I learned what those were that particular night, right? But let's say I brought her her onion rings correctly the first time. And then after I set those down, got her a drink, I said, you know what, hold on. I, I got you these onion rings. I hope you're grateful. I hope you're really thankful for that. Uh, but, you know, it's like 5 o'clock, and I'm really hungry, and, you know, I'm just going to pause right here. I'm going to go get something for myself, sit down, enjoy that, and, you know what, when I'm done, I'll come back, and I'll, I'll get you next, right? Um, <laughs> how would that have worked out? Probably not very well, right? And the idea is that if I'm the server, if I'm taking orders from them, I don't have the right to just 
interrupt whatever they're telling me to do and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat and I'm going to serve myself and then I'll come back and, and get to you. Uh, no waiter could do that. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 8. The master comes first, naturally. And just because the servant did his duty by plowing the field, that doesn't mean that he's earned the right to neglect the other duties for the day. He continues to serve his master, and only when his master is eaten does he eat as well. Okay? And again, if you think of the example with me, it's not so far removed from the example today. That's not so far-fetched as it were. Now look at verse 9. Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, as I've already told you, the implied answer is no. And the reason that the servant is simply just doing what he was expected of him, that's, I mean, that's the reason. That's, that's why the answer is no. He should not expect uh, the, the extra level of praise, is what it's saying, above and beyond just because he did his job. And that's what it, it's meaning there when it says, does he thank him? It's, it, it's saying, does the servant expect that he should get an extra level of praise for having done all that? for working in the field, and then making his master his dinner, and then sitting down to eat? And the answer is no. He shouldn't expect a special level of praise. He's simply doing what he's expected to do. Now, I want to say this, and just pause here, and make this very important application here. As you're reading over verse 9, when he says, does, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Jesus isn't speaking out against saying thank you to people. Right, I want you to hear that loud and clear. Uh, it would be wrong for you to take this verse in isolation and out of context and therefore conclude, well, since Jesus is saying that, I don't have to thank anyone ever again. Or I shouldn't thank someone when they do something for me, when they do a good job. Uh, that's not what this verse is implying or saying. What Jesus is saying here is that the servant shouldn't feel entitled to praise just for doing what he was supposed to do. He has no right to feel slighted if the master uh, doesn't praise him for each and every task that he completes. And we shouldn't expect that of our bosses, right? Every single line you write down on a, on a page or type up on a computer screen, boss isn't required to come in and say, good job with that, great job on that letter, good job on that line, you know? You shouldn't feel that way, that kind of entitled. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's speaking against an entitled attitude not against people saying thank you. And just to prove this point, in case some of you uh, might not be convinced, we're coming up on uh, Mother's Day very, very soon, and one of the most famous Bible passages that we could think of when we consider godly women is actually Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 describes many qualities of a godly woman, and notice what it says our responsibility is to do uh, for women like that. Verse 30, the end of Proverbs 31 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is what? Anybody know? To be praised. To be praised. It's a command. Um, God commands us to appreciate, to praise, to give thanks to a person for the character that they possess and for the work that they do. And if a woman like that is to be praised, certainly we can and should praise others who work hard to strive to be good examples. So, for example, when we look at, you know, somebody who's serving in the sound booth week after week, and I appreciate those guys so much, they don't mute me, okay? I really appreciate the work that they do or just turn off the cameras, you know? If, if they're doing their job, for example, week after week, 
We shouldn't just be saying in our, in our hearts, well, that's good, they're servants. They're just doing their duty. Uh, they don't need to be thanked. Uh, they're doing what they're supposed to do. If, you, if you're thinking like that, you are thinking about this passage entirely wrong. Why? Here's why. Only the master can have that kind of attitude. And we're not the master. It's not our job to judge other master's servants. Only Jesus, out of any of us, can call himself the master. We are not that person. So that's not the attitude that we're to have. Rather, I would say our attitude towards those who serve faithfully should be like that of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.16, where he says, and this is at the beginning of almost every letter of his, he says, I do not cease to give thanks to God for you. I do not cease to give thanks to God for you. So we should express that to people as well. If you see somebody serving God week after week, I would say thank them. When you see people who are staying late here to disinfect the pews, thank them. I don't want you to walk by them and say, well, they're only doing their duty. That's what this passage is saying. No, it's not saying that at all. Certainly, as we serve God in our particular context, we shouldn't have an attitude of entitlement. Yes, everybody should be praising me for all these different things that I do. No, that's on us. That's our individual attitudes that we have to work on. But as you see people serving, we should be looking for opportunities, like the Apostle Paul, to say, I thank my God for you, for everything that you do. You help to serve this church and do different things, and as you see people share love for other people, that should be our attitude. So I want you to see that in Luke 17, 9, Jesus isn't speaking against giving praise or saying thank you, but rather his point is that he wants us, the workers, the servants, to guard our hearts against feeling entitled to it. Yes, there's nothing wrong with being thanked, but we shouldn't work in God's kingdom only to be praised. Rather, when we do our jobs, we are to remember that that is what we are expected to do. So now that we've explored this example of the slave and the master that Jesus gives in this parable, we move on to the main point that Jesus is driving towards. And this is the spiritual point of the parable, so don't miss miss this. This is is what we've been driving towards all all day, all morning here. Um, Luke 17, 10, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's break this down a bit. Jesus says this, So you also. That means in light of everything that you've just heard, Just like the slave in this illustration, this is how you, too, should think and act. But there's even more going on here. Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded. Uh, When Jesus says, so you also, he's making it clear that you and I are also the servants. We are not the masters in this parable, even though at times we act like we are. No, we are the slave in this analogy. And Jesus gives us a reality check when he says, when you have done all that you were commanded. In other words, when we obey Jesus, we have not gone above and beyond, but we have done everything that we have been commanded to do. And when we have done all that we have been commanded, we should say this. He says, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We are unworthy servants. That's true. When we think about God's character and who we are, we realize God is perfect. We are not. We are sinful. And uh, there's nothing wrong, uh, I'm sorry, there is nothing within us 
uh, that would give us the right to demand praise from our Heavenly Father. Let me just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. This illustrates it perfectly. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath. That's what we were. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it's only by grace, it says. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a true status. And we are not the master, not even close. We are unworthy servants. And if we have obeyed God at all, we have no room to boast about it. If we have accomplished anything that is pleasing to God in this life, we have only done what was commanded. And in the end, this is meant to humble us. Jesus' parable is meant to give us a true picture of how we stand in comparison to God. Therefore, we should never feel entitled, as if God owes us anything. We can never feel as if God has been unfair, as if he is not giving us what we deserve. Rather, anything we do for God is simply what we owe him. It's our job. As it says, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So what should be our takeaway from this passage? What's the application? Well, we've already established that this passage gives us a sobering look at our relationship before Jesus. We're not the master, Jesus is, and we are simply his servants. But while we contemplate that thought, may we also remember these encouraging truths. And I want you to balance these things with everything we've said about this status as servants. Number one, while we are the servants and Jesus is our master, it cannot be overstated that Jesus is not just any master, but he is a good and he's a gentle master. And that's a very important distinction. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We see from that that Jesus is not a harsh master. Rather, he is gentle and lowly. His burden is light. He's not someone we need to fear. He is the best master we could ever have. He cares for you. He loves you. He's gentle and lowly at heart. Secondly, we remember that while we've been called to serve Jesus, for sure, we remember also that before we ever did that, he came first to earth as a servant and served us. And that is a mind-blowing thought. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so the Son of God isn't just a king who sits on his throne and orders his servants around, though he would have every right to do so. But no, even the manner in which he came to earth demonstrated humility. 
being born in the likeness of men, took on a form of a servant. And then during the Last Supper, he even served his disciples. It says in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. What kind of king would do that? What kind of master would do that for his slaves? Jesus did. And yet, if Jesus did all this for us, then we certainly should do that for him. So Jesus gives us that example to follow. Thirdly, even though we have been called to serve our master Jesus, he does something amazing that no earthly master would ever do for his slaves or servants. He actually calls us friends. He actually calls us friends and sons. John 15, 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have also called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now, he's not negating everything we've just preached on. He's saying it's that you're not only servants to me. You're my friends. You're my children. Sons and daughters, he calls us. And uh, we are to take all those things together. Yes, we still serve Christ, but we have a relationship to our master that no earthly master has to his slave or servant, and that he calls us friends. So when we look at this big picture, yes, we are only servants, as verse 10 tells us. And yes, our job is to serve the Lord Jesus, but at the same time, we see that he is a good and gentle master. He is a master who came down out of heaven, clothed in humility, demonstrated the kind of service that we should live out. And this is the same master who also calls us friends and sons and daughters. So it means we can serve him with joy when we recognize just what kind of master he is. So with that in mind, let me just give this exhortation. Since we know that our master calls us his sons and daughters, let us therefore be willing to serve him all the more. Let us serve him with humility. Let us always remember that we have not earned this love. Yes, Jesus calls us his friend, but may we never use that as an excuse to grow entitled or arrogant. When we serve God, may we never grow so proud that we come back to him and say, look at all I've done for you. But in the end, we remember he is still the creator and we are his creation. And we're reminded of this main point in verse 10. Let me read it one more time. So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's meant to keep our ego in check. It's not meant to give us an excuse to stop thanking others or for us to look at other people when they've done a good job and walk right past them and say, I don't have to acknowledge them. They've only done their duty. And remembering that we are servants is not also meant to take away from the fact that Jesus has welcomed us with opened arms as sons and daughters. We can still say with confidence, Jesus calls me friend. And because Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, we can come to him boldly, come boldly to the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 tells us, so that we may find grace and mercy in time of need. This passage doesn't negate any of those things, but rather it's meant to keep our hearts from becoming too proud meant to keep us from entitlement, as we said, and give us that cure for entitlement. It gives us a proper mindset when we serve here at church, or when we sacrifice our time or our money or our efforts for others. It's meant to give us proper perspective when we go through hardship, even. 
And in all these examples, when we've, we have it ingrained in our minds that we are servants of the Lord Jesus, that shouldn't drive us to despair, but rather it should fill us with a sense of purpose. In that now I know what I'm supposed to do with my life, Lord. I will, I will be your servant. I will do it with all my might. When we remember these things, that will keep us from becoming entitled. In the next chapter, and this is where I'll conclude, Luke 18, the author, Luke, will show us an example of that kind of proud attitude that we should guard against and the kind of humble attitude that we should be careful to keep. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then here is the conclusion in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If we're fortunate enough to serve Christ well, whether it's for the majority of our life or even just a part of it, if we receive any commendation from God at the end of our life, may we bow before him and say from our hearts, we are but unworthy servants, we have only done what is our duty. May that be our attitude even as we serve here on earth, and may it fill, it, fill us with humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us would come to serve you with all of our hearts and minds and all our energies, our talents, with our full measure of purpose. Not being driven to despair by this passage, but rather saying with purpose, Lord, we are your servants. Help us to do what it is that you have commanded. Guard us from entitlement, Lord. If you bless us in any measure with comfort, with material things, with family, God, may we never become proud and think we have earned it all. And God, if you ever bring hardship into our lives, uh, as Job experienced or as other um, godly men and women have in the past, may we never turn our fist toward you and claim you as being unfair. Rather, God, help us to remember our position before you, that we are but unworthy servants and only have done what is our duty. As we do so, God, help us to remember that you call us friend and that we can serve you with joy. May we be filled with this purpose all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.